Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this last week, I spent a fair amount of time on airplanes. I spent a whole lot of time waiting for airplanes, although not nearly as much as Jordan did. (laughs) We were at the ACNA Provincial Assembly in Dallas, and it was great, and I will tell you more about it later. But getting to and from assembly was a nightmare. As one of my fellow delegates said, DFW doesn't stand for Dallas-Fort Worth, it stands for delayed for weather. (laughs) But in any case, every time I boarded an airplane this week, the same thing happened. I would inevitably be on my phone as I stood in line or on the jetway. I was happily connected to email or the web or whatever. But then when I boarded the plane and sat down, and I would pull out my phone for that last thing I needed to do before I shut it off, I wouldn't be able to connect. Because the problem was that my phone had switched from cell coverage to Wi-Fi. Because on some previous flight, I had connected to the airline's Wi-Fi network to download their app or something. And now my phone remembered the network and automatically connected to it whenever it was available. But unless I went in and decided to pay whatever exorbitant expense they were charging to actually have Wi-Fi service, my phone would show the connection, but the connection wouldn't actually work. So for whatever I had to do before takeoff, I had to go into the phone settings and turn off the Wi-Fi, disconnect the Wi-Fi. My phone's connection to that network had been useful in the past, but it wasn't useful now. But the connection was automatic, even though it wasn't useful. And for my phone to actually work, I had to intentionally disconnect the automatic connection. And often, I think we need to do something kind of similar when it comes to reading scripture. Because a lot of the stories and the images and the ideas in scripture are really familiar to a lot of us. And when we hear them, our brains automatically make connections. Connections that can be, that maybe have been, really useful to us in the past. Things that have helped us to understand the truths that we find in the Bible. But sometimes, the fact that our brains automatically make those connections turns out to be not all that useful after all. Because the automaticness makes the connection seem obvious or even really inevitable. So we hear something like, take, eat, this is my body given for you, and we automatically think communion. And that automatic connection actually shields us from the shock That Jesus is telling his disciples that by eating this bread, they are somehow eating his flesh. And when we miss the shockingness of that, then we miss something about how radical it is that God incarnate actually gives himself to us and invites us to partake of his very being somehow. 
So to recapture the power of Jesus' words, it helps to intentionally disconnect the connections that our brains tend to make automatically. And this morning's gospel passage from Luke is one of those passages where I think we need to do some of that intentional disconnection. This is a very familiar passage, seven short verses, but what Jesus says in them would have been world-changing for his disciples. And if we are going to grasp, or rather be grasped by, that world-changing power, then I think we're going to need to do some disconnecting. But first, let's take a look at what is actually happening in the passage. So we're in the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. Jesus is well into his ministry in Galilee. He has been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing all kinds of miracles. Just before this chapter, Jesus has calmed a storm. He's healed a hemorrhaging woman. He has raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And right before this passage happens, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and some fish. He'd also sent his 12 apostles out on their first mission, and they had gone out and healed people and taught about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Herod has been wondering who this guy is, this Jesus. So what's happening is that Jesus' fame is spreading. He was attracting crowds. He was attracting a lot of attention. And there was a lot of wondering about just who or what he was. So as we begin this story, we find that Jesus is praying alone. And that's a significant detail in the story that only Luke gives us. The story also appears in Matthew and Mark. But in Luke, he notes Jesus was praying alone. Because in, G- in Luke's gospel, all of the major moments of Jesus' ministry begin with him praying. So he's praying, and his disciples come to him, and he asks them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, I don't think Jesus is looking for information that he doesn't know with this question. Right? Rumors and gossip get around. He would have heard what people were saying about him. What he's doing with this question is setting up his next question. Who did the crowd say that I am? And the disciples say, basically, everybody thinks you're some kind of a prophet. Maybe John the Baptist somehow come back to life because John had already lost his head, thanks to Herod. Maybe people talk about him as Elijah or one of the other prophets of old Clearly, there was a lot about Jesus' life and ministry that was like the ministry of the prophets. But there was something more to Jesus than just prophecy. And he was getting ready to see if his disciples had understood that. So then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his great declaration of faith. This is one of Peter's shining moments. He says, you are the Christ of God. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one, the chosen one. In other words, what Peter is saying is you are God's Messiah. 
the one God has chosen and sent. Now you can imagine how Jesus might have responded or how Peter might have wanted Jesus to respond with sort of cosmic bells going off and confetti falling from the sky and he congratulates Peter. Yes, you got it right. And then he says, go tell everybody. But that's not what happens. Instead, no bells, no confetti. He instead strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Why is this? Why would Jesus not want everybody to know he's the Messiah? His disciples have figured it out. They've been shown that. Why doesn't he want everybody to know? Well, the key is in the first word of verse 22. Saying, so Jesus says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, comma, saying. That means that whatever he is about to say is the explanation for why he told them not to tell anybody. And what does he say? He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And this is where I think we have our first disconnection to make in this story. We're used to hearing Jesus say things like this. He's going to say it again later in chapter 9. He'll say it again in chapter 18. In Matthew and Mark also, Jesus three times in each of the Gospels predicts his suffering and death and resurrection. We are used to hearing Jesus say this. We know that Jesus' suffering and death are a, a crucial part of his messiahship. But the disciples would not have known this. They wouldn't have expected Jesus to say this. Jesus is saying that he has to suffer and die right after they have said that he's the Messiah. This would have been not just surprising, but scandalous to them. That's why in the other Gospels account of it, this is where we get Peter saying, No, Jesus, you will not do this. They're scandalized by it. And that's why Jesus tells them not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah. Because he knows that they don't really get it yet. They don't get the kind of Messiah that he is. And they don't want him to go around broadcasting his Messiahship before they understand what that means. The Jesuit commentator Brendan Byrne writes this. He says, The fact that Jesus is the Messiah can never stand alone. It must immediately be qualified by awareness of the kind of Messiah he is destined to be. Not the Messiah of conventional expectation, but a Messiah destined to suffer and die, and so, through suffering and death, enter his messianic glory. The disciples can't really understand, and we can't really understand, who Jesus is, unless and until we wrap our minds and our hearts around the fact that the Messiah, God's chosen one, 
willingly underwent suffering and death out of love for us so that we could be reconciled to God and so that God's kingdom could come to its fulfillment. This is familiar enough to us that it can become sort of formulaic. But if we can disconnect these ideas, the idea of Messiah and the idea of suffering and death for our sake, then we can grasp, I think, a little bit of how astounding this would have been for the disciples and how astounding it should be for us that God, that God would choose to subject himself to profound suffering, even to death, sheerly out of love for us. Can we sense some of the wonder that the disciples must have felt? So Jesus makes this startling and profound link between who he is, the Messiah, and what he will do, suffer, die, and rise again. Which is strange enough in itself. But then he goes on and he makes another link. In verse 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, this is where we have to make our second big disconnection with this term, take up his cross. Because we hear cross and we think Jesus, and we probably think salvation. And the disciples would have thought none of that. Maybe even Jesus didn't know at this point that he would die on a cross. All the cross would have meant the disciples was brutal execution by the Roman oppressors. It would be kind of like Jesus saying to us, take up your electric chair daily and follow me. So Jesus is telling his disciples that being his disciple means being willing to take up voluntarily, to take up suffering and death just like Jesus will. And this is another link that Jesus makes. He says, I'm the Messiah. I will suffer and die. And because I'm a Messiah who will suffer and die, then if you are my followers, you need to be willing to suffer and die too. Why? It's not because Jesus is cruel or some kind of a sadist. This link is true, this connection between who Jesus is and what he does and what we as his followers can expect and need to be willing to offer. This connection happens because of the deep communion that Jesus and his disciples share. It's what in John's gospel Jesus describes as abiding. I will abide in you and you in me. Jesus is so close with his disciples. Their relationship is so deep and so intimate that what Jesus experiences, we will also experience. Because he abides in his disciples, because he is in them, because he is in us, 
then the world will respond to us the same way it responded to him. And it is possible that this means literal death and martyrdom. It did for some of the 12 who were there with Jesus that day. It continues to be true for far too many Christians, even in today's world. But there's an interesting detail in Luke's account of this story that doesn't appear in Matthew or Mark. Jesus says, let him who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. If Jesus were only talking about literal death, well, that's not something you can do every day. It happens once, right? By saying, take up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus is saying this is metaphorical. That every day we must be willing somehow to die to follow Jesus. And he says we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And this is where I think we need to make two final disconnections in this story. One, I think we need to disconnect ourselves from the way that we may have consciously or unconsciously internalized the belief that's so prevalent in our culture that good things happen to good people and that if I am good, God will reward me. I was recently watching a TED Talk by Kate Bowler, who is a professor at Duke Divinity School, and she is an expert on what's called the prosperity gospel. This, as she points out as a Canadian, a peculiarly American teaching that says basically God wants to give us all of the wealth and health and happiness and good things that he can if we're good, basically. And Kate Bowler is an expert in this. And then at age 35, she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. With a, she had a one-year-old son. And she said as she was on her way to the hospital, having just gotten the call from her doctor with the diagnosis, she said the irony hit her that she had just published this book about the prosperity gospel called Blessed. And here she is, diagnosed with cancer. And she said, I always thought I studied the prosperity gospel. I didn't believe it until she was in a place where she was faced with this terrible diagnosis, and she sort of thought, well, why do I deserve this? And she says this in the TED Talk. If you live in this culture, whether you're religious or not, it is extremely difficult to avoid falling into the trap of believing that virtue and success go hand in hand. The more I stared down my diagnosis, the more I recognized that I had my own quiet version of the idea that good things happen to good people. Aren't I good? Aren't I special somehow? I have committed zero homicides to date. <laughs> we might not say that we believe this, but our culture crams this idea into our heads. That if we are good and faithful followers of Jesus, if we are righteous and holy, then good things will happen to us. And that is not what Jesus says. 
Jesus does not say, if you're going to come follow after me, get really excited because everything's going to go well. He says, if you're going to come follow me, get ready to die every day. We have to disconnect ourselves from this insidious belief that good things happen to good people if we're going to be able to experience that deep kind of abiding with Jesus that he offers to his followers. We have to disconnect from that idea and reconnect to the idea that a crucial part of being a disciple of Jesus is denying ourselves. But I also think we have to disconnect what we often think of when we hear deny ourselves. Because it's not, I think, what Jesus really means. Because often when we hear that we have to deny ourselves, or we hear Jesus say, deny yourself, we take it as this instruction to sort of just crush the life out of ourselves, right? We think that we have to strip away everything that we desire, every longing we might have, that somehow God wants to just rip all that stuff out of us in order to test our love for him. But that doesn't fit with everything else that Jesus says. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So denying ourselves in the way that Jesus calls us to cannot mean crushing our spirits to death out of some sort of test of God's love for us. N.T. Wright, in his translation of this passage, says, he doesn't say you must deny yourselves. He says, you must say no to yourselves. You must be willing to say no to yourselves. We have to be willing to say no to our own ideas of who we are. We have to be willing to say no to all of our attempts to create our own worth, to earn our own righteousness, to be God, which is what sin ultimately boils down to. That is what we have to deny when we deny ourselves. Jesus calls us to say no to that self, that false self, so that we can say yes to the self that God has created us to be. He has created each one of us uniquely, and that is the self that he wants to grow us into. That is the self that he rejoices at, that he celebrates over. So denying ourselves is not squashing our individuality. It's not getting rid of everything that we hope or want or long for. It's being willing to say, I'm not going to use these things for my own sake, but I'm going to offer them to you, God, and let you tell me who I am instead of me telling you who I am. We have to disconnect what we often think denying ourselves means from what Jesus really means so that we can embrace that call to discipleship and in that to find that we have life abundantly. Jesus ends these comments to the disciples with this saying, 
He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What Jesus calls us to do is to let ourselves be disconnected from all of our attempts to save ourselves, to play God in our lives, to decide what makes us good and worthy and worthwhile, and instead to lose all of that for his sake, and in doing that, to find the only life that is really life in him. Thanks be to God. Amen.